I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 90, as uh, this will be the last Sunday, at least of this summer, that we look uh, to the Psalms as our summer in the Psalms, since summer will soon be over and we won't be in the Psalms, but uh, don't be surprised if uh, this theme comes back again uh, in subsequent summers. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 90. As you're turning there, just, uh, uh, just looking ahead a little bit, um, next week as we normally do the first week of, of a month, we will have a message prepared, uh, kind of preparing our hearts to, to come to the table. And then the following week, the second week of September, September the, the 10th, we'll begin our new series, which will be a study of uh, the, the book of James, uh, as uh, God uh, has spoke through, uh, through the, the church leader. Uh, to give us practical wisdom on how uh, those who are followers of Jesus Christ uh, should live their faith out in this world. Uh, But this morning we look at at Psalm 90, the only psalm attributed to Moses, although he has other songs that are in the scriptures, this is the only one of his uh, writings that is in the Psalter. Beginning in verse 1, hear the word of our God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad in all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our, hand, uh, work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come, we give thanks to you for the word that you have recorded for us. You have not left us to wonder about you, though we stand amazed and we can't possibly comprehend, but you have revealed yourself through creation and specifically through your word. We know that your word uh, is uh, is powerful and it, it speaks, it shapes. And so we pray even now as we consider this prayer of Moses, that you would speak to us, that we would resonate both with his experience and that we would grow wise by hearing and heeding and practicing these words. Lord, shape us until we all reach full maturity in Christ to the glory of your name and the joy of your people. We pray in Christ. Amen.
It's reported that Winston Churchill wrote his own epitaph soon before he died. Here's what he wrote that he wanted on his gravestone. I'm ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Now, his family thought otherwise, and apparently he wrote this, but his family decided they would put something else on his headstone, so that's not what's on his headstone. But you get a sense of the man is thinking as the, the end, at least in his mind, was coming near. And it's amazing sometimes if you go to graveyards and, and see what people do have on, on their headstones. Let me give you a couple of samples of those that I found particularly interesting. Uh, there's a man in Nova Scotia who, whose gravestone reads this way. Here lies Ezekiel Akel, age 102, the good die young. A West Virginia coal miner, very simply put, gone underground for good. And Mel Blanc, the creator of Looney Tunes and Bugs Bunny, his headstone simply says, that's all, folks. Some epitaphs are creative, some of them are profound, some of them are powerful, many of them are interesting, they all speak some sort of a message. And I've been thinking about that a lot in the recent days. Uh, not only as I've been preparing for this message, because in this prayer of Moses, uh, Moses is saying that it is important that we number our days. In fact, that's his petition that we see in verse 12, and we'll come back to that uh, repeatedly as we look at this passage today, because that sort of forms the uh, the primary, the, 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 the piece of this psalm that you hang your hat on, and everything else is wisdom that enables us to cultivate the ability to do that, and then prayers, petitions, that we are praying for God's grace to be at work within us uh, that flow from those who have the wisdom that comes from numbering our days. But I've been thinking about it in particular, even in the past month before I started turning my attention to this psalm, although I've known for a while that we're going to be looking at it this week. But in this past week, I had a milestone birthday. I appreciate the cards and the sentiments of happy birthday. I just wish the occasion wasn't there for that. I've had plenty. I'd be perfectly... I, I wish I was a a, a, um, a leap year baby born on the 29th of uh, February, then I would be 15 years old right now. So, or have, I, but then it was also enhanced because last week, I got, uh, a couple, couple weeks ago, uh, late uh, week and a half ago, I got a call, uh, and I have a cousin who's two and a half years older than I am who suddenly passed away. And last week I went up late weekend, I went up and and did his funeral. Now it was bittersweet. Uh, it's kind of sobering. He's two and a half years older than I am. He's had some health issues, although in other ways he was incredibly healthy. He was a hiker. He lived in Sedona, New Mexico, hiked consistently and constantly, stung by a bee, which apparently kind of triggered some underlying health issues he had from Lyme's disease and had a heart attack despite the fact that his heart was as healthy as you would imagine anybody who hikes miles and miles and miles every single day. It was a reminder of just the, the, the briefness of life. It was sad because even though we've not had a lot of contact for uh, a number of years, we were very close uh, when we were young. Not as close as his brother and I were, who are a month apart, and we lived and enjoyed making his life miserable when he was a preteen. But nevertheless, there was a, a closeness, and that is now gone, and it was sad. And and yet there became a, a joy is because I, I found out in speaking with his wife, he had become a Christian several years ago. I had no idea. And I kept expecting it's going to be you know, superficial, but 
the words and what she wanted me to do. She gave me a text that I've never done in a funeral before. They wanted a graveside service, which is usually just read a few verses and pray and go home. She said, here's the passage he was reading the day before he died, which is about Jesus saying, this is the work that the Father has sent me to. The Father doesn't judge, but he sent the Son to judge, but he judges by the Son, and those who have the Son have life. This is what I want you to preach. Now, my family's nuts, so I was a little sweating. But anyway, um, and so, but at the same time, what a delight, you know, the bitterness, the sweetness, but all of that, it's on my mind. The shortness of this life, the numbering of our days. I began in, in Wendell Berry's words from his novel, Jaber Crow, uh, began to really resonate because here's what Jaber Crow uh, says. He's the primary character in, in that novel. Back at the beginning, as I see now, my life was all time and almost no memory. And now nearing the end, I see that my life is almost entirely memory and very little time. Now, I don't know how much time I have, but I know I have a whole lot less. I know that I am not have more years and more days ahead of me than I have behind me. And so this really kind of uh, has struck, and these are some of the things I've, I've been thinking about. And then as Moses is saying that there is a wisdom that comes from numbering our days, that's that's what he's urging us to do. I consider them all the more. But it's important before we move on to just to, to recognize that in this, Moses is not encouraging some morbid contemplation. There's another commentator who said this, there does not seem to be a trace of bitterness or undue pessimism, just plain, realistic thinking marked by these words, the words of Psalm 90. And what Moses is essentially saying through this, or the underlying truth that Moses is pointing to when he encourages us, urges us to number our days and then live our lives uh, in, in line with the fact that our, our days are numbered, is that the most important part of the headstone, it's not the date of birth or the date of death, but it's the dash that is in between. Because the dash that is in between is what represents the life and what you and I and everyone has done with their life. What matters is not what people say at somebody's funeral. What matters is not what the person says about himself. The dash represents that time between taking the first breath and taking the last breath. And Moses is saying that it's important that we number our days. It's just a sober reality. But the reason behind that is because, as we see, is there's a wisdom that comes from that. When we recognize that our days are numbered, whether that number is a small number or a high number, we are less likely to squander them. There is a wisdom that crystallizes, that we recognize what is important and what is more trivial, and we are more inclined to spend the minutes, the moments, the years, the month, whatever, we're more inclined to spend them in what matters and what is wise. But it's also important that we recognize that the idea of numbering our days is not limited to life and death situations. It, it pertains to any number of areas of our life, and that's part of the importance of this passage, and that it's not a, a morbid passage. It, it may be for some of you that you look to the time when you become empty nesters. Maybe you have the youngest of your children as a teen, and that time is soon. 
Maybe the oldest of your children is a toddler, and that time may not come soon enough at times. But the time will come. Those days are numbered. It may be that you've invested yourself in a career and you enjoy it, or maybe you don't enjoy it, but the time of retirement will come. How do you spend your days? For those who are students, whether high school students or college students, there's going to come a time of graduation. Your days are numbered as a student at whatever institution you're in. And so the idea of numbering our days is, is not just look to the fact that you know, life is short and we're all going to pass. It is a way of crystallizing, a way of focusing, a way of creating a foundation and a grid for the way that we are to live our lives. And Moses is urging us to do that. And the whole passage is about living lives wisely. And in this psalm, we see it broken up really into, into really two parts. We see the beginning, we see three principles that Moses uh, is focused on. They're, they're kind of three focal points or three perspectives that enable us to have wisdom because they are foundational truths. And then we see afterwards a, a string of petitions to pray for God to be at work and to cultivate certain things in our lives. So let's look at the at first of, of, the, of the, the perspectives, the, the principles that Moses deals with. And we see it first in, in verses one and two, and simply summarizing that Moses begins with God, begins with thinking about God, begins with what does he know to be true about God? How many of you have heard, we've quoted it many times before, but J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says, those who know God have great thoughts of God. In other words, it's not just people know stuff and they can do theological, but those who actually have a relationship, those who know God, who know about him, what, he, what he's like, and, and, but to truly think about God rightly we, is anything but trivial. A.W. Tozer, in the opening words of his classic book, Knowledge of the Holy, says these profound words. What comes into our mind when we think about God as the most important thing about us. And so Moses, as he's offering up this prayer, and as he's beginning and writing this out, this psalm, his first thoughts are about God. What does he know about God? How does he relate to God? The psalmist tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it, it makes sense. If we're going to live wise lives, then our thoughts about God and, and a holy fear. Now, a number of people misunderstand what that means because there are plenty who live frightened of God, that somehow or another God is just going to uh, come in and make life miserable for you just to cause suffering for whatever the reason, and we all experience suffering. But the word fear, when it's uh, uh, related to God, is not just about this, this terror, particularly for those who are in relationship with God. It is a reverent awe when it is in its healthiest. It is recognizing that something is powerful and dangerous and yet beautiful at the same time. It's like when I stand on the edge of a cliff on a high mountain in the Smokies, although frankly over the years I don't stand quite as close to the edge because I have the fear part when it looks down. I don't know when it started developing, but I can get close to the edge and I just feel the surge of, you know, which maybe it's wisdom, I don't know. 
I'm not taking any chances. But the fact that I have that awful feeling whenever I do that, you would think would say, don't do that anymore, but I, the beauty and even the benefit of that surge of fearful energy is exhilarating and renewing. Likewise, I am always fascinated by the ocean waves, particularly if, if a storm is coming in. The, the pounding and the power and the size of the waves always is amazing to me. And, and I think this is just but an expression of the power of God that can sink ocean liners, that can pull buildings off their foundation into the sea. It's just an incredible thing to see both the power and the beauty at the same time, recognizing just how awesome that is. And yet, as I think about that, I recognize that all of my perspective is standing on the shore. And then I imagine those who have served in the Coast Guard, the men and women who are in the Coast Guard that are out, sometimes particularly doing the rescues in the midst of those kinds of storms. And whatever awe I have, the appreciation and fascination and amazement that they have has got to be even greater. Moses begins with God because he's saying, that's where everything begins. We need to have a perspective of God. That's the foundation. That's our orientation. Even the idea that we are contemplating God is a constant reminder that we live for God's glory. He created us, and our primary purpose is to glorify him and to enjoy him now and forever. But in this passage, Moses specifically focuses on a couple of things. Now, uh, historically, the context here, at least according to James Montgomery Boyce, and I think he's right, Boyce says this, the historical setting of Psalm 90 is probably best understood uh, by, the, um, by the record in Numbers 20. The death of Miriam, Moses' sister, the sin of Moses striking the rock in the wilderness, which kept him from entering the promised land, and third, the, the death of Aaron, Moses' brother. So Moses was at a time where he was experiencing loss and um, challenge. He was not likely on his A game. He was still functioning, but... not fully himself. And so as he thinks about how God's revealed himself, he said, the Lord, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And the word dwelling place in the Hebrew here could mean refuge or it could mean dwelling place, and both are appropriate. And depending on the intensity of the circumstances that you're presently in, uh, you might be inclined more to think about the refuge. Refuge is just some place you can go where you can get protection from for the moment. Uh, but as one Old Testament scholar pointed out, as, as true as that is, uh, the translating it uh, refuge uh, only speaks about the temporary. A dwelling place is permanent. And Moses has in mind that whatever's going on, whatever's causing him angst in his soul, he can go to the Lord. And there he can find shelter, he can find comfort, he can find respite from whatever is going on. And it's not just something that he can do and then has a time limit, but it's eternal. It's eternal in the future. And Moses says it's eternal in the past. You have been our dwelling place, the people that belong to you. We find our hope and our shelter and our protection in you. 
just like everybody who's come before us has. You have been our dwelling place, our shelter for all generations. Before even there were mountains or you've thrown the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, here's who you are. You are God. And the reminder of that is very important because it's a reminder, perhaps Moses speaking to himself, something that we need to remind ourselves of perhaps every day with the fast-changing nature of the world that is around us. It's important to have a focal point that does not change. And Moses is reminding himself that even though he may have a short time, even though things are changing all around him, even though things may seem to be in turmoil, God, who is our shelter and has been for his people for every generation, he is the same as he has always been. Before he even created the world, he is. And so Moses is urging us, no matter what your circumstance, a foundation of numbering our days rightly and living wisely according to number days is to be thinking about God and how we live whatever days God gives to us for his glory and in his grace. And then Moses turns his attention from God to man. God who is eternal and who is strong and humanity that is incredibly frail. And Moses says this, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, O Lord, are but yesterday when it's past, or a watch in the night. You sweep them away as, within the, as with a flood and they're like a dream. And he's saying that even the longest life is like a breath when compared to eternity and the perspective of God. And it's not just God who has that perspective, but we know that as well because of how easily and how quickly most people are forgotten. A generation, two. How many of us know a whole lot about our great-grandparents? That's our own line. And Moses uses the imagery here of like a dream. And it's, we all dream. And yet when the morning comes, most of the dreams are forgotten. And even that which we remember usually are kind of a patchwork of remembering certain things. And Moses is saying that's the life of man in comparison to the reality of, of God. And he goes on. He said, you know, this is not a, a formula, but just an observation. 70 years, 80 years, that's a, a good, healthy, normal lifespan. And he's not saying that's the limit. If you're over 70, forget it. Um, if you're over 80, you're on borrowed time. Um, he doesn't tell us that. He's just talking about in generalities here. But the standing principle is this, is we are but dust. And he even says in all the years that we do have, whether they're 70 and 80 or 90 or 100 or whatever they are, they're filled with trial and tribulation. I mean, it's not that there's no joy, but he's focusing on, on, the, on the difficulty that we all experience in this life. And then he shifts his attention to the reason, which is our condition. He focuses on our sin and God's wrath. Pick that up again here in, in verse uh, uh, 7. 
for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. And Moses is just confessing here and acknowledging that something that is true, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wage of sin is death. And that is our condition. Moses is not saying God is condemning people over and over and over again because we struggle with that. He's just saying this is the condition and the condition is what causes uh, death because God will not tolerate sin. Sin must be paid for. Now, it's quite likely, more than one commentator had pointed out, that Moses very well have had in mind here thinking back of experience, a particular experience. When he had gone off to the mountaintop to meet with God, where he was given the law to bring back to the people. Moses was gone for quite some time, at least according to the people uh, who were waiting to find out what was going to happen. And, and they essentially went to Aaron and said, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy, so uh, you know what? Fire up uh, the furnace and make some gods for us so that we can worship them. And Moses came back, saw this, and we are told the anger of God was burning against his people because they had rebelled. They had turned to other gods. They had sinned against him. They didn't seek him first. They did not seek his glory. That's the nature of sin, no matter what it is, even if we don't do it in quite the technicolor. And the wrath of God was fierce. And the only thing standing between the people of God, the people who had been the beneficiary of his blessings, and the wrath of God was one holy man which is also a picture for us, that the only stand, thing standing between us and the holy, righteous wrath of God is one holy man who is without sin, who is interceding on our behalf, who has died to pay the penalty that our sin deserves, and now pleads a case on the Father, so on the, at the right hand of the Father, and saying, Father, forgive them, because I have already paid that price. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have wrath. It means that we need to stand in awe that God poured all of that wrath. Just imagine when you read that story, uh, the account of the people making the idols and bowing down to the calves and everything else, and then God shows up and how angry and kind of what you expect to take place if Moses hadn't been there. And recognize that that's what God put on Jesus Christ because of you, because of me. It's not that God just says, ah, forget it. He's gotten tired in his old age, and so therefore he just doesn't have the energy to follow through with this stuff anymore. Look, I've told you before, I'm going to tell you again. Just go live your The wrath of God is very real, but it's been poured out on Christ. And so Moses here is, is dealing with the reality of our condition, because even though we've been forgiven, we still have sin that doesn't work within every one of us. And these three things really are the foundation of living wise lives. Recognizing who God is and what God is like because of how he's revealed himself. Recognizing our lives, no matter how strong we are in comparison to anybody else, no matter what we think that we have achieved or can achieve, life is short, life is frail, and sooner or later everybody's going to forget it. Very Ecclesiastes kind of thing in, in this uh, psalm. And that we all struggle with sin and a holy God doesn't trifle with that and a holy God is not to be trifled with. 
these three things, these are three planks that if we are continually orienting ourselves to these things, we are now in a foundation of wisdom. And Moses, he's laying this foundation before he moves into the petition part of the prayer. The whole thing is a prayer, but he moves into the petition part of the prayer because he's reminding himself and those who would later read, people like us, these foundational truths and then saying, okay, because this is the case, Lord, we need you to be at work within us. And we see beginning in verse 12, a string of petitions. He says, first, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I think the key there that I want to focus on is, is that we're, he's praying that God would teach us. At the beginning of the message, I said, look, this is what God is calling to. Moses is urging us to do this. And we can turn our attention and we can study and focus on things. But ultimately, we can only do what God enables us to do, that God would bring to our mind the truth that God would bring wisdom to us because wisdom comes from God. And so Moses is praying, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's something about knowing that our days are short that brings wisdom. Paul Tripp in his uh, book, Age of Opportunity, A Guide to Parenting Teens, he explains that the difficulties of raising teens is their lack of awareness of their own mortality. Tripp calls it an absence of an eschatological perspective. Those of you like big words and theological words, there you go. But in other words is, they live for today. They know death is real, but not for them. What Tripp is pointing out, that if you're a parent of teens now, is something that we also need to remember, is the stupid things that we did when we were teens. A lot of it is attributed to the fact that we had no real perspective of what's going to happen later or tomorrow. We lived in the moment, and then foolishness always follows that. But when we don't know our days are numbered, we realize we don't want to waste them. We need to invest them wisely. So one of the prayers that Moses invites us to pray is, Lord, teach us to number our days. And then he follows up with that. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice, be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Actor Jim Carrey said at one time, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they can see that it's not the answer. And I don't know that there's any evidence that Carrey understands this, but what we see over and over and over again is only God can satisfy. But it's interesting, the man who has everything recognizes that it satisfies not at all because only God satisfies Going in another direction in terms of a quote, Mother Teresa says this, you will never truly realize God is all you need until God becomes all you have. Now, I love the quote, and then if I think about it, I really don't. Here's what I mean about this. I love the quote because it's a true and it's a perspective that I need to hang to on. But I don't really want God to be all I have. I like God to provide all I have and give him thankfulness. You know, that's the doxology, wonderful. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I like that. But what Mother Teresa is saying is, what happens when all of the temporal blessings don't seem to be there and all you have is God? His promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he has not forsaken you, that he will see you through whatever it is that you're dealing with. And she says that, It's only when we're in those circumstances, to the degree we're in those circumstances, that we can truly understand 
that that's, God is all we need. And for me, it's something I need to remember and I just don't want to experience. That's my confession today. But what Moses is pointing to, his prayer is, Lord, you satisfy us. Satisfy us with your love. Now, with his love comes his provision, but his love comes primarily in a person. And Moses is pointing and saying, Lord, be with us. Let me be with you. And he says, and let us experience this. For as many days as we've experienced affliction, as many days as we've seen evil. How many days is that? Well, I don't know. How old are you? Because as many days as you've lived, you've seen evil. And even on your best days, there is affliction. And so Moses is praying 70, 80 years. I mean, but our God, you know, Lord, give us satisfaction for 70, 80 years. I can endure this if I know that on the other side of this. And yet the incredible news of our God is he doesn't say, okay, well, you've lived, you know, 73 years and you've had a tough life. So for the next 73 years, you're going to have blessing. He says, in Christ, you have blessing for eternity. You'll be with him. He will bring satisfaction forever and ever. And we will know what it means to be satisfied in God. Moses goes on, he says, let let your work be shown. Moses is aware that we love because God has first loved us. He knows that we stand amazed at God, only we recognize who God is and what God has done. He recognizes that we stand in awe of God when we look at the creation and what he has made and see both the beauty and the power and recognize that that is just his artwork and a, just an expression from him and doesn't even fully capture his power and his beauty. But Moses is saying, Lord, show us what you've done. Show us what you've created. Show us what you're doing. And not only is he talking about how God is providing for the world, but his work of redemption, the mission that God is on in order to call people from every tribe and tongue and nation, that he's at work within the lives of people that belong to him. And Moses is saying, Lord, remind us over and over, show us that you are at work. Because there's something encouraging about hearing how God is at work. That's the power of testimony when people share how God has been at work and how God is at work in their lives. Moses is saying, Lord, continue to show us that. I think he also shows it because it goes hand in hand with the final petition that he has, which is establish the work of our hands. You see, God has called everyone and gifted everyone and equipped everyone to do certain works that he has prepared for us to do. But the works that he's called us to do are part of building his kingdom. And so when we see that God is already at work, we recognize that whatever it is that we do is part of what God is doing. We recognize that there is a purpose and our purpose is to be part of what God is doing. And Moses is saying, Lord, show us what you're doing and then equip, empower, enable us, establish the work of our hands work through us 
that you might receive glory. And in short, what he's praying here is, make my life matter for the sake of the building of your kingdom, for the blessing of the people who are around me. And Moses here is zeroing in on a life well lived. Live before the presence of God, aware of his own mortality and of his own sinfulness, characteristics that all bring humility, but aware of the grace of God that is at work and has been given. He has a hope that empowers, that shapes, and enables him to live day to day with joy, regardless of his circumstances. The dash in the tombstone represents what we did with the days between birth and life. It can't possibly capture the reality of our lives with a quaint phrase. But when we look at our circumstances, both the suffering and the prosperity through the lenses of what God is doing in his redemptive work in and through his people, we recognize that that dash is far more pregnant than we often imagine when we see it. May God grant us the ability and the willingness to number our days. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for this word and pray that you would speak continually to us. May Moses' prayer be our prayer. May we recognize our frame but your glory and grace. May we rest upon your provision as we pray to you to be at work in us, to bring us satisfaction and fulfillment in line with your purpose and your person. Lord, let our lives as well as our mouths praise you. We pray in Christ. Amen.